Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. The cook, the juror that was the cook, laughed so hard that he fell out of his chair. And David was able to jump out of the witness chair and catch him. Please rise. Court is now in session. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing uh, this afternoon? I am good. It finally stopped raining here in Atlanta, and I feel like that just picked up my spirits. And we have a fun, we have a fun case to talk about today with a lot of fun names. Yes, There's a lot of yeah. fun names to say in this case. No, this is this is this is a great case. I'm, I was speaking about your weather. I heard you all got tornadoes or something though. So uh, I hope everybody was uh, was safe over the past few days. Yeah, it was it was pretty crazy here, although um, we were um, pretty lucky where I live. And I sort of I watched it on TV. I never got to the lowest level in my house. Don't tell my parents. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Didn't put the the mattress over your head in the bathroom. I didn't. I didn't. But um, that's what I did growing up in Ohio when there was a tornado is we'd get in the bathtub and put a mattress over top of us. See, in Tennessee, we got tornado warnings all the time, and I just started to ignore them, which is not what you should do. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Don't don't ignore. Don't do that. <laughs> well, uh, uh, let's go ahead and welcome our guests. Uh, we we have just a, a fantastic trial lawyer, uh, H. Lamar Mickey Mixon, a partner at Bondurant Mixon in Elmore in Atlanta, Georgia. You can look him up at bmelaw.com. Mickey, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm um, so happy to survive the tornadoes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hope everybody stayed safe during those times. Um, well, Mickey, we've uh, we, we've got just a, uh, a fantastic case to talk about, and we'll and we're going to talk about it some more. But I um, I want to make sure that I tell our listeners a little bit about you. And and to be honest, there's a lot to tell about you because uh, you've had uh, obviously uh, an impressive career, or else you wouldn't be talking to Ivana. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, no, you you had a a great career, <laughs> and uh, but. Um, uh, let me just tell everybody a little bit about Mickey. Mickey has been uh, has been practicing. Uh, he's a founding partner of Bondurant Mixon and Elmore, which is just a, uh, a tremendous, fantastic law firm, not just in the state of Georgia, but nationwide um, has had um, uh, great verdicts on both sides uh, of the uh, of the V for both plaintiffs and defense. And uh, and we're going to be talking about one of those cases today. Uh, but Mickey, uh, I'll, I'll just let everybody know that you uh, graduated from Washington Lee and then went on to Harvard Law School, uh, where you were the editor of the Harvard Law Review. So I think that's a pretty good law review and and um, and pretty well known. Uh, also a member of Phi Beta Kappa and Phi Eta Sigma. Uh, and Mickey has been is a fellow in the American College of Trial Lawyers, a fellow in the International Academy of Trial Lawyers has been named as one of the best lawyers in America every year since uh, the, since they've been naming the best lawyers in America, has been a super lawyer uh, every year, um, has been involved in just some of the, uh, some of the uh, largest, uh, um, most substantial cases. And, um, and we're gonna be talking about one of those today. Um, he was, all, Mickey, you were also a finalist for trial lawyer of the year. Uh, for your um, Abdullah versus Coca-Cola case by the uh, Trial Lawyers for Public Justice, which is a um, a great organization. Um, and you are, I think you're currently president of the International Network of Boutique Law Firms. Um, 
Well, the Atlanta chapter. The Atlanta chapter. Okay, okay. All right. Well, you're moving up. Um, so, uh, so, anyways, well, welcome to the show, Mickey. We're so glad to have you on. Well, thank you very much. It's um, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I, I was thinking as I was reading about some of your past accomplishments that um, that I imagine that you're not on the Christmas list for Time Warner. Uh, you know, uh, somebody had to do it. Yeah, exactly. And the reason I'm saying that is because uh, so not not only the case that we're talking about here today, which involves Turner Broadcasting System. Uh, and was a $281 million verdict, but uh, Mickey was co-counsel in another case involving uh, Six Flags of uh, of Georgia versus Time Warner, which uh, resulted in a $451 million verdict. So Time Warner, I'm sure, is not happy when they see uh, see Mickey on the other side of the case. Uh, they've been very, very good to me. <laughs> right, right. Yes. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, so I've got to know before we dig into the case, um, how, Mickey, how did you start to go by, um, Mickey? Well, I have, have my parents to blame for that. <laughs> uh, I was, uh, my first name was actually Homer. Um, uh, so my name is Homer Lamar Mixon. I was named after my father. He hated his name. I don't know why. <laughs> <it was me>. Right. <laughs> my parents decided that they would call me something other than my real name. And so they picked Mickey. Comes from uh, Mixon. Um, yeah. So, you know, so I've been called Mickey all my life. And I identify with uh, the Walt Disney character very strongly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right exactly. Well, that's terrific. I wondered because. like. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I wondered because my dad is a, is a similar, he's a, he's a, John, John Godfrey and a long line of John Godfrey's, but he goes by, he goes by chip, um, for sort of chip off the old block, but really, cause there were just too many Johns in the family. So I was wondering if it was similar for you. <laughs> yeah, well, it's similar to that. And, and well, even, even more bizarre is my father's name, Homer Lamar was a made up name. by my grandparents. <laughs> but, you know, one, one Roman, one Greek. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, M- Mickey. Of them in uh, Skipperville, Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very. Well, uh, Mickey Mixon is just one of many, uh, many of the cool names that I alluded to in, in the case that we're going to talk about today. Yes, yes. And and I, I we're we're going to go to another one of the cool names, which is the uh, the plaintiff in the case was David McDavid. Uh, and and David McDavid is a um, or is a owner of a number of car dealerships in uh, Texas in Dallas, Texas, was a former owner of the Dallas Mavericks. And back in 2003, uh, David uh, entered into negotiations through his group to purchase an 85 percent interest in the Atlanta Hawks the Atlanta Thrashers, and the operating rights for Phillips Arena, which is now uh, State Farm Arena, I believe, um, it, to to purchase those. Uh, so Atlanta Hawks is obviously a basketball team. Atlanta Thrashers is a hockey team. And um, and then the Phillips Arena is, was where they were playing. And, um, and he entered into this under a letter of intent and entered into it in a... Uh, an exclusive agreement, a confidential agreement, uh, where they were only or only supposed to be negotiating with uh, uh, Mr. McDavid's group. Um, 
got down the road uh, in negotiating a deal. And, and uh, you know, one thing I wanted to talk to M Mickey about as we go on is it sounded like uh, Mr. McDavid worked a really favorable deal for his group, um, getting these these companies, these teams and, and the Phillips Arena on a, on a, a really good deal, which amounted to about $96 million for all three. Is that right, Mickey? Uh, it's even better than that. <laughs> That was the that was the contract amount, but in reality, because of the various credits and stuff, he could buy the team for seven million dollars in cash. Seven million dollars? Yes. Oh and my god! <laughs> it was it, it, uh, actually uh, the testimony in the trial was that when it got down to that point where Time Warner had come down, basically. It, it, Economically, it was always approximately seven million in cash, but uh, there was some uh, simplification of the deal. When it came down to seven million dollars in cash, McDavid David testified. He said, "I was kicking myself. I was saying, I can't believe this. This this is incredible." <laughs> you know, the, uh, he and his uh, uh, team of advisors were kind of dumbfounded at how cheap it was. Uh, right, little. Little did they know what was in store for them. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So, um, so, so they basically work through the deal, uh, work out all of the material terms. Now, that's a point of contention, and we'll talk about that. But from the plaintiff's perspective, worked through all of the material terms. We're told verbally uh, by the negotiator uh, for Time Warner and for Turner Broadcasting uh, that they had a deal. Um, they were actually told that three separate times, once on July 30th, 2003, then again after there was a, on August 16, 2003, then there was an approval by the board of Time Warner with only two dissenting votes, one of which was Ted Turner, and we'll talk about that uh, in a little bit. And then uh, basically on September 10th was told that they had a finalized deal and that they needed to make their way to Atlanta uh, so that they could do a press conference announcing the sale. <clears throat> Little did they know that while that was going on, while they were being told that they had a deal, uh, and, and that included just to, as part of the evidence, uh, that they were given the, um, basically the uh, control of the teams was turned over to Mr. McDavid's group, where such that he hired the general manager and hired the coach uh, for the teams. So, I mean, he really thought he was uh, going to be uh, owning these teams and, and moving forward with it and had been given control. But uh, uh, Ted Turner and some others uh, basically started to negotiate with uh, Ted Turner and Ted Turner's uh, son-in-law, Rutherford Seidel, uh, and another gentleman named Michael Garon, who was the, um, who's the son of uh, one of the board members of the Hawks. And basically, they were told how good this deal was that Mr. McDavid was getting, and that um, basically they uh, Turner Broadcasting System and, and Time Warner made an agreement to give the same deal to the Atlanta Spirit LLC, which was Mr. Seidel and Mr. Garen's uh, Garen's company, uh, and so basically just pulled the carpet out from under uh, Mr. McDavid. Uh, and said that they, you know, had a disagreement on material terms, uh, and they came up with some material terms, couldn't come to an agreement, and so then they they were going to have a sale to Atlanta Spirit, and um, and actually, let me let me go ahead, go ahead, yeah. 
Um, at the time, they didn't pretend that there was any disagreement at all. They just said, we've changed our mind. Right. Uh, and in, it, well, in actuality, it was kind of amusing. On September the 15th, David was about to leave uh, Fort Worth to come to Atlanta to sign the written agreements that would confirm all this. And uh, he got a call from the head negotiator, a guy named McCaffrey. And he said, uh, David, we've decided to go in a different direction. And McDavid said, you mean the mascots are not going to come to the press conference? (laughs) McCaffrey said, no, we're going to sell the team to somebody else, not you. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. You know, completely floored uh, uh, and uh, shocked. Yeah. Uh, and, And he was particularly shocked that it wasn't that they sold it to somebody else and Time Warner got a better deal. They got exactly the McDavid deal. In fact, the contracts that the Spirit signed, uh, which they I think they signed on the 12th, they'd already signed contracts. <clears throat> the contracts that they signed were done in such a hurry that there were a lot of places where they forgot to change the name. <laughs> and it had McDavid's group name in there instead of the Spirit. Oh my goodness! I, I, yeah, I just have this uh, picture in my head of of Mr. McDavid just getting onto the airplane, ready to come to Atlanta, and then his phone rings, and you know, and they, and they tell him, "Look, the whole thing's off, buddy." You know, <laughs> sorry for all your hard work over the months. Yeah, well, that's that's exactly that's exactly what happened, and uh, we uh, um, we were, you know, David was surprised at that, but he was particularly surprised that that the Spirit Group got. The McDavid deal, right? In right, fact, exactly. The, uh, if we'll get to it in a minute, but there was. Uh, it turned out that uh, down the road, between the time of the Spirit signing their contract and actually closing the deal, which took months, and months, um, that uh, the Spirit considered suing Time Warner because they weren't delivering the McDavid deal. Oh, man. And uh, suing them for fraud is, is, a matter of fact, what their lawyer said. Wow. Saying. Wow. Well, uh, so so uh, Mickey and his team represented uh, David McDavid and his group uh, at trial brought a case that uh, alleged breach of contract, uh, promissory estoppel and uh, fraud against um, uh, Turner Broadcasting System and Time Warner. Uh, and then and took the case to verdict in December of 2008 in Fulton County and uh, and uh, received a verdict of two hundred and eighty one million dollars. Um, so just tremendous work. But as I was uh, mentioning before we got on the air, Mickey, I think my favorite part and uh, is, is that uh, as part of your opening statement, you quoted uh, Otter's quote to flounder in Animal House that uh you screwed up. You trusted us. I, I love that. Yeah. And if you've seen the movie recently, you'll know that that's not a precise quote. And right. Yeah, I, I did watch it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little more vulgar than that. Um, but uh, yes, well, that is my, I, I actually try to use that in every jury. <laughs> really handy. 
Right. I, I wasn't sure if you just tried to use different parts of Animal House because one of my favorites is, uh, you know, Otter's classic uh, slippery slope argument that he makes when they're, you know, uh, throwing the fraternity off. Um, yes. Yeah. Well, there we won't be tricked by that. <laughs> right. That's right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Whereas I, I think my favorite was um, I at least saw this in your outline. I don't know if you ended up saying it, but you were sort of you had mentioned it was like a, a David and Goliath situation or more accurately, David and Goliath's son. That was, well, that I, was my favorite. Yes, it, it was actually what I tried to say was actually Mac David. And go off. That's right. <laughs> Mac David. Right. Yeah. And go, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, man, because that's the thing that I feel like, I mean, we'll get into it, but I that's the thing in reading the facts that resonated with me was the whole sort of like just the the whole family son nepotism connection thing. Just, yeah. Yeah. What a well, bummer. Well, Mickey, I, you know, I, where to start on this case? I, I think where I'd like to start is just, you know, when you talk about a case, I mean, this is a breach of contract case between sophisticated parties. Uh, that was certainly part of the defense. I mean, how do you take a case like that or how do you approach a case like that and and boil it down to simple terms for a jury? Well, it was, uh, you, you got it right. I mean, you boil it down to simple terms. And this, what I did uh, in the beginning when we were picking the jury, um, they had the whole, we had 80 some odd people that we picked the jury out of. And I asked them, I, uh, one of the first questions I asked him is, who in this courtroom disagrees with the statement that a man's word is his bond? Nobody disagreed with that. Right. And I mentioned that to the jury eight weeks later in my closing argument, that that's what all this case is about. And fortunately uh, for us, we got uh, during the course of the trial. Well, fortunately for us, number one, the jury believed that they thought that a person's word should be their bond. And we got several witnesses from Turner to say, oh, yes, they would be entitled to rely on our word. Right. If we said we would do something, we would do it. And. The jury, uh, it, as it turns out, uh, totally believed McDavid's uh, version of the facts. Uh, and there were a, a number of reasons for that. But, but that's the fact. You boil it down to just a promise. Right. And, and the issue originally was, was there really a promise? And then it soon became, well, was it reasonable for McDavid to rely on the promise, even though that's not technically a part of uh, you know, a breach of contract? That was really the gist of their defense, that no one would conduct a transaction this complicated with this much money without a written contract. But we said, well, yeah, we knew that'd be a written contract. We intended that it'd be a written contract. Um, we, uh, just, we, we'd already agreed orally what it would say. <laughs> right. And, you know, they, we had, uh, Time Warner, uh, well not Turner Broadcasting's president, uh, the chief negotiator for Turner Broadcasting and Turner Broadcasting board, all of which agreed that the, there was a deal. 
Um, and um, we had the deal documents, which were you know, six inches thick. Right. That um, the uh, we'd say, yeah, and there's the deal. There are the very complicated terms. No one disputes that 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 is the deal. Uh, the only, you know, the only thing they're just, and we don't dispute it, it's, it's not signed. Right. But it's not signed because there was a disagreement. It's not signed because they sold it to somebody else. Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed. Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me. Yes, yes. A lot more working from the computer. Yes. And only getting dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services. That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference online, it's more important now than ever. I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them. And uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services. Yeah. And I mean, LTS, I'm going to, I'm going to call them LTS because we, yes. we're on a first name basis. <laughs> you know, my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot. Their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well, whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in-person trials one day, or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you, you can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there, but they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life videos. They do settlement documentaries. They do demonstratives and everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they, I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. I had a question uh, that kind of almost sort of a practice pointer because, you know, you deal with these 
complex business cases a lot and had great success. And I at least personally find that one of the challenging things about business cases can be obviously someone's coming to see you because something has gone wrong. And you're really getting kind of one side of of the story for a while, especially as it relates to what can be really um, complicated transactions. And you're getting, you know, one party's viewpoint and one party set of, of what they have. And I can find those cases really difficult to sort of get my arms around and figure out what kind of what elements of the story I might not I might not be getting. And so I guess I'm just interested whether it's this case or just in general, if you have any pointers for how you approach business cases, especially when they first come in. So before you're you're boiling things down for a jury and you're just trying to figure out the whole picture as best you can of what of what really went down. Well, uh, this case, uh, this case in particular, the facts were complicated and there were a lot of them. Uh, These negotiations went on on almost a daily basis for close to nine months. Um, Both sides were represented by big, sophisticated law firms. Uh, Both sides were represented by uh, experienced, uh, actually, lawyers experienced in um, sports team acquisitions, to be specific. Uh, and it, um, uh, the way I found out what happened was we had to talk to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're right that uh, David McDavid's version of what happened was uh, uh, a lot more simplified. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. And the, and the facts turned out, it was true. I mean, everything, right. yeah. everything he ever told me was absolutely true. It was just a lot simpler uh, and to the point. Um, uh, David was a, uh, uh, by the way, was a fascinating guy and uh, was, uh, he, your, his background, his daddy was a car dealer and David was a multi-car dealer and ended up being uh, the president of what is now AutoNation and a big owner of AutoNation. And uh, used his um, ads in um, Fort Worth, Dallas, Fort Worth were ubiquitous. (laughs) David McDavid, his name was all over everything. Right. And and, um, he he approached a lot of things like uh, you would expect a car dealer to approach them. (laughs) <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but it, yeah, it, it takes a while to get the whole picture. Mm-hmm. And, um, I can, uh, without going into the gory details, I can say that the version of the case that we tried is different mm-hmm. than the version uh, that uh, uh, David and his lawyer, Robert Kelso, presented to me uh, one um Nice afternoon in, uh, I think, 2006. Gotcha. When we first started this. Right. Uh, it wasn't wrong. I mean, it was just, it was just a lot, uh, a lot more complicated. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I liked in the, in your opening, uh, you know, the, the theme, sort of the theme of, you know, this case is as simple as we have a deal which they were told not once, not twice, but on three different occasions after the board had approved it, uh, you know, after they said, come to Atlanta, we're going to announce it. I mean, so it's, you know, and, and after, 
you know, we we even turned they turned over hiring decisions. So, I mean, I think that was a real nice theme just to pull uh, everything together. And then the other part of it, I thought was great. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> it was a it was a theme because that's what happened. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, but but then I liked how you hit uh, you hit the defenses just head on and explained you know some of these concepts uh, like indemnification and reinstatement and capitalization you know in very in, in very you know understandable terms for the jury and just why those weren't really an issue at all. Well, it's um, you got to if you explained the jury was there for eight weeks, they had a enough of a time to understand a lot of what was going on. Uh, we were very fortunate um, in one sense. Um, we had at least two people on the jury with graduate degrees. Um, we had, uh, uh, well, excuse me, I'm wrong. Three people on the jury with graduate degrees. Um, all people on the jury who uh, were uh, experienced in business, and we had, yeah, but we had a variety of people. We had a, a guy on there who was a cook, uh, a, um, a chef. And uh, during the eight weeks, he made meals for the jury. <laughs> really? Wow. <laughs> He'd make food for them. I found out after the case was over that he was working nights. Oh, my goodness. Going to the trial during the daytime, uh, uh, only sleeping about three hours uh, a day. Oh gosh! But he said he said he enjoyed it because he said this trial was actually interesting. Um, I think he was a Hawks fan, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, and related to that, I mean, when you were doing jury selection, you know, what were you what were you looking for in this case? I mean, I can imagine in some ways it would be different from what you'd look like in a lot of the cases Steve and I talk about on the podcast because. Um, certain levels of sophistication, um, not that you'd want unsophisticated jurors, but certain levels of background knowledge about business might be more um, useful to you. I don't know how the the Atlanta fandom, if that would hurt or help. Was there anything that you were kind of flagging as you were picking the jury? Well, um, the way jury selection works is you usually, it's not so much you, you aim to get a particular <laughs> juror Right. You aim to get rid of bad jurors and you take what's left. Right. Right. That's, that's actually what we did. Um, we, um, interestingly enough, and I've never, the judge, uh, Tom Campbell, I, I've, I've never had a judge do this in a civil case, but he had us do individual interviews with the jurors uh, outside of the presence of other jurors. Um, the, I mean, basically, we took the the prospective jurors one by one into the into the jury room with the judge there and opposing counsel there, and just talked to them one on one. Um, and that was uh, incredibly helpful because you know when you're out there in a room with an audience of sixty people, mm -hmm. the jurors are occasionally shy about talking. They're certainly shy about volunteering. Um, and the individual discussions with them uh, was extremely helpful. Um, and, and in fact, uh, the guy who was the uh, foreman of the jury 
who uh, I get was totally convinced of the merits of our claim, uh, I almost struck him for that <laughs> individual interview uh, because I'd asked him, I said, I'd asked the jury as a whole, I said, does anybody here have a problem with oral contracts? And he said, yes, he had a problem with oral contracts. And it was only when I talked to him individually that I, that I realized that the problem was his father had entered into one to his, and then the other side had reneged to his detriment. And he, his problem was that, you know, I don't, it's not that I don't believe in them. It's just my father ended up on the short end of one of those disputes. Uh, and so in other words, he went from being someone who's potentially hostile to someone who's actually potentially favorable. Yeah. Yeah. So I asked him, do I look like your father? (laughs) 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 I do think that um, individual, it's weird. I've only been, I've been in one trial like that. I don't know how many you've done, Steve. I mean, you've obviously tried a lot more cases than I have, but I found like we, we did like sort of general voir dire and then individual follow-up. Yeah. And I, I felt like it was, sounds like it was a little bit different format wise. And, but I felt like it was, I wasn't even doing it. And I felt like it was just grueling. It was just like grueling to stick with for that many people for that long, (laughs) useful, but grueling. Yeah, very useful. And and for me, uh, hard to remember who says what. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I, uh, in fact, the, when I do it, I, I have uh, a couple of my uh, uh, other lawyers that work with me. And I say, look, your job is to remember who says what. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Your, your job is to. Uh, because I, I, I can talk to them. I can ask them questions. I can I can get them going. But after I do 25 or 30 of these, I, it's really hard to remember who exactly said that little tidbit. No, yeah. that, that's absolutely true. I mean, that's what, you know, lawyers work so hard and our firm certainly works hard on putting together a, sim, a system so that, you know, the lawyer who's who's talking to the jury is not the one who's keeping the notes because you can't keep up with everything. And you want to have a conversation and get them to say you know, as much as they can and get them to, you know, come forward with, with everything they're, they're going to say to see whether or not they're an acceptable juror or not. Um, But I I do remember one time where the judge, uh, you know, normally they put them in row by number. uh, But uh, Jeff and I were trying a case one time where the judge didn't believe in sitting them by number. And so people would just raise their hand and we really had no idea who was saying what we're trying to, you know, follow the chart. And it was, uh, you know, we're like, we, we think we're going to get a jury here. We don't know. Well, that's, um, yes, I've had that happen too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> One thing I was wondering about Mickey is, is in a case like this, and this certainly has a lot of sort of juicy facts because you're talking about the Atlanta Hawks, you're talking about, you know, these characters uh, like, like Ted Turner and, and David McDavid. Uh, but was there any sense or were you worried about any sense that, you know, Hey, these, these are millionaires suing millionaires or rich guys suing rich guys. One guy, you know, lost some money, but what's the big deal? He doesn't need it kind of thing. Were you worried about that at all? And if, if so, how did you, uh, did you address that? I, I've been very fortunate in my career to have represented a lot of extremely wealthy people. And I've uh, never found a jury that held it against somebody that they were wealthy. Right. Uh, it, 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 it is, it is a strange phenomenon. Um, 
But the jury was fascinated with the um, um, details of this case and the details of uh, wealth and, uh, and to some extent power. Um, for example, um, the uh, Turner's lawyers decided that one of their uh, potentially uh, uh, fruitful cross-examination subjects was to try to prove that David McDavid could not afford the team, that he was in over his head. And they had, of course, his uh, financial statement um, that he'd submitted uh, because, well, anyway, they had it. Um, and um, uh, they were asking him questions about it. And, you know, he, he, he wasn't a Ted Turner billionaire. Um, he was probably only worth about $300 million. Uh, but his $300 million was essentially in cash. <laughs> and right. and he, they, finally, he said, uh, uh, David said on the stand, he said, uh, look, it was only going to cost me $7 million to buy the thing. <laughs> I had 300, I had 100, $100 million in cash. Right. <laughs> I, I mean, I, you say, I don't know about how the jury feels, but I think a hundred million dollars is a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah, I, exactly. I think if you've got a hundred, you can afford to pay seven and have 93 left. Well, and, and, and that was one of, I felt like that was one of your key points was that the, the, the defense was trying to claim that he wasn't capitalized enough or didn't have enough assets, but the, the Atlanta spirit didn't have any. Um, and they made the deal with them. Is that, is that right? Well, that, that is right. Uh, the sum of the people, the, the spirit group ultimately uh, brought in additional people because they needed money. They, uh, uh, Mike Guerin and Rutherford Seidel uh, were, not, uh, were not wealthy then. Um, interestingly enough, you know, the, uh, to digress, uh, the uh, Hawks uh, were sold. Um, a couple of years ago, Rutherford and uh, Mike sold the teams and got, I think, a billion and a half dollars for it. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Some, some, uh, there's a lot of money. Uh, and, uh, and I saw them after the sale and they seemed very happy with the result. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. <laughs> Um, I guess when you were putting this case together, was there ever any thought of bringing them into the lawsuit or was it basically they were, uh, just sort of found good fortune because, uh, Turner Broadcasting was going to breach this agreement? Well, we, we felt like, we felt like that, that it was unnecessary to bring them in. Uh, they didn't add anything to it and we didn't have a contract with them. Right. And we found out that they had an indemnification provision with um, uh, Turner. Uh, so they were going to be indemnified. The money was going to come from Turner anyway, regardless. Right. Uh, and Time Warner and Turner Broadcasting had plenty of money. Uh, so we didn't, we just, you know, we've, and, well, and also that was who we had our contract with. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, there was, uh, there was probably a little bit of thought, but we soon threw that or, you know, didn't do it. Uh, and I'm glad we did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, sometimes you can just overcomplicate a case by uh, bringing in too many parties and too many lawyers for, for those parties that'll all be throwing mud at your client. Well, that's exactly right. Now, uh, 
they, um, Turner did call uh, both Mike Guerin and Rutherford Seidel, and I think another, another one of the members of the Spirit uh, as witnesses, um, which uh, uh, worked to our benefit. Um, one of the, I think one of the strategic errors that they made, that Turner made in the case, is they called too many witnesses. Uh, we tried our case in approximately almost a little less than two weeks. Wow. They took six weeks for the defense and called just everybody and his brother. Wow. Uh, uh, and we were fortunate that we managed to get good testimony out of every single one of their witnesses. Um, and because they would, they would call a witness for one part purpose and we would ask them questions about something else, which right. helped us. Um, for example, um, they called the stand, the spirits lawyer who had represented them in the, um, transaction. We had, thanks to uh, uh, some of my partners, uh, extremely uh, uh, fortunate motions to produce uh, litigation up in uh, Maryland. We had all the emails between that lawyer and his clients. Oh, wow. Something you don't usually get. Yeah, exactly. And um, uh, he, um, when I was cross-examining him on the stand, I said, well, let's see here. Uh, after you signed the deal with um, Turner, uh, but you hadn't closed yet, you and your clients found out uh, that uh, Turner wasn't delivering the McDavid deal to you, didn't you? And he said, yes, I did. And, uh, and you got, your clients got upset because they've been promised the McDavid deal and they wanted the whole deal, the exact deal that David McDavid got. And you threatened to sue, or you told them that you would sue Time Warner for fraud for saying they were going to give you the McDavid deal and then reneging. And he said, yes. And I said, you wouldn't have told your clients that if you didn't think it was true, would you? He said, no, I would not have. I said, so they tried to defraud you and not give you the McDavid deal. He said, yes, they did. And they didn't succeed. <laughs> because we got the McDavid deal. So, Yvonne, the Internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic. And it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world, but if nobody knows about them, then they're not going to come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like Digital Law Marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization, it's really important that your firm's site is, is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. 
Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website. And you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. How was it? Yeah, I saw in their uh, pretrial uh, memo that they were claiming that the information that they had received from Turner or that Turner had given was not confidential, but it seemed pretty clearly that there had been a lot of confidential information turned over. How did they address that at trial as far as saying that that information of the deal was not confidential? Well, the the financial projections that the, they didn't give the spirit, David McDavid's personal financial information. Uh, they they claimed that they didn't give the spirit David McDavid's uh, projections. Um, I don't think anybody believed that, uh, but that's what they claimed. Uh, and the uh, spirit principles said that they never saw. Them. Um, but um, the uh, the. What was confidential was not just the financial information. What was confidential was the deal itself. Right, right. It was, it was, uh, and that was part of the letter of intent that survived uh, the no, uh, excuse me, June fifteenth expiration date. Another, uh, another practice pointer for lawyers everywhere. These letters of intent are important. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Write them, write them so they, uh, another uh, interesting part of my cross-examination of the Spirit's lawyer is I said, well, you, uh, you wrote a letter of intent uh, when, um, you, uh, when the Spirit started negotiations, uh, didn't you? And he said, yes, I wrote it. And I said, you're a good lawyer. You know how to write a letter of intent. And the letter of intent that you wrote says that the parties are not going to be bound until they sign a final agreement. And it said that this provision survives the expiration of the letter of intent. In other words, this provision is good for the entire negotiations. In fact, I said, it says in here, this provision applies to the entirety of the negotiations, no matter when they occur. And I said, unlike the Time Warner letter of intent that says when it expires, everything in it is null and void. Right. Uh, means it's as, as if it never existed. Um, a, um, uh, and I said, you know, you know how to write a letter of intent that says, you know, what it says. Uh, anyway, it, it was uh, 
it was a useful contrast. Well, right, especially since you were claiming, essentially claiming that this was an oral agreement that was enforceable, uh, and they were trying to claim that uh, under the letter of intent, you weren't going to be bound until everything was signed. And, yeah, uh, and, 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 the, and that provision of the letter of intent expired. Right. And the Turner's in-house lawyers wrote the letter of intent, and it said when it expires, it is null and void. And we were, I mean, this wasn't very hard, but my my partner, Jill Pryor, was able to uh, get the general counsel for Turner on the stand to admit that when it says null and void, that is as if it had never existed in the first place. And she agreed. Yeah. And so the provision that said it has to be in writing was gone. Right. So so during that six weeks of of them putting up witnesses um, for that trial, what were they, you know, understanding that you were really able to use that year to your advantage in cross? Wh- how were they structuring it? I mean, did they were there really that many details that they at least felt that they needed to cover or were they you know, proceeding sort of under the strategy that the more people they could bring in to say the same things over and over again was going to convince the jury. What you just said. Okay. (laughs) Apparently, I I mean, I do not know. I've litigated several cases against the lawyer who was the chief lawyer, chief defense lawyer. And I do not know why he called. So I I believe I believe it was it was sort of let's throw a lot of stuff against the wall and see mm-hmm. what it takes. Yeah. Well, and almost like if it takes six weeks to get their case out, they'll just have forgotten about what your case was about because it was so long ago. Yeah. And 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 generally, I would say that virtually all the witnesses that they called were were in some respects hostile to our position. Um, they. Um, you know, they they said they said things we didn't like, but we were lucky enough to get them to say things that the jury did like and that uh, Turner were fatal to Turner's case. Right. It seemed from your um, at least from the outline of your opening that I think I think his name is McCaffrey, that 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 head negotiator um testified to some things, at least in his deposition, that were really helpful to you in in showing what was really going on here. Um, And I'm wondering, well, number one, whether that's right. And number two, um, how his testimony went at trial. Uh, Yes, that's right. Um, He, for example, I believe he was one of the many Turner witnesses who said they could rely on our word, Mm -hmm. for example. which, you know, if you actually think about it, what else is he going to say? Right. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> no, well, not my word. The flounder defense. You should. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, but ultimately, that's what he did say. Um, he was not a very good witness uh, for them. Um, I called him as my first witness. Um, and. It was it was sort of a it sort of digressed. Um but this is this is an example of the way trials go. Um, in cross in Georgia, you can call an adverse party for cross examination, and the other side does not get to do a direct. Um, so I did that, and um, 
in questioning him, um, I, I was talking to him about a meeting that occurred in his office in Atlanta that McDavid attended in person. And it was a meeting that did not result, <laughs> unlike most of them, there was no agreement here. This was in early July. There was no agreement here. In fact, it was McDavid left the meeting thinking there would never be an agreement because Turner kept bringing up new stuff. Um, and I, I was just talking about the meeting and the chronology of events trying to, and I said, now you weren't at the meeting for a couple of hours because you left to go to a party, didn't you? And he said, no, I don't remember going to a party. And I, you know, and, and this is, you know, the party is irrelevant to the case. Right. Uh, but I said, but you remember everything that happened at the meeting, don't you? And he said, yes, I remember everything that happened that day. And I did not go to a party. And one of my partners handed me an email that uh, uh, he had he had written that very day that said, uh, dear uh, so and so, uh, thank you for hosting this wonderful party. Uh, it was certainly a delight. And, um, uh, you know, I enjoyed attending. And I showed him the email and I said, well, actually, before I showed him the email, I said, no, so you're as sure of this business about the party that you didn't go to as anything you've testified to in this trial. Is that correct? He said, yes. <laughs> so I showed him the email. I said, okay, you wrote this email thanking Ms. So-and-so for having this great party. And he said, yes, I wrote the email, but I did not attend the party. <laughs> being a good boss and thanking her for hosting this party that I did not attend. <laughs> My partner handed me another email. It was from the woman in reply. And she said, I can't remember what McCaffrey's first name was. Uh, we'll call him John. Um, she said, John, I'm so happy you came to the party. It was <laughs> two hours and you really made it into a great thing. And we'll all remember your presence. <laughs> Suppose when she wrote this, she was talking about you, right? You're, you know, you're John. Or and and he uh, he said, I don't know how she wrote this. I I was never <laughs> at the party. <laughs> and, and then oh. I, my my partner gave me another email. <laughs> it was from uh, the person who the party was for, somebody who'd been leaving, and it said, "Dear Mr. McCaffrey, thank you so much for coming to my party. I really." Mm -hmm. Speech you gave. Yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. So that's a good way to start out with your uh, your first witness. Yeah, that was that uh, that sort of elevated. His, um, but you know, I mean, the party was irrelevant, right? It, right. It it, it it also just you know demonstrates like you know when a witness gets off on something that really just doesn't matter at all, but uh, <laughs> but won't let off of it because they just want to disagree with you. They just don't want they don't want to agree with anything you say. Well, they want to they want to disagree with you. And they're not. Some people have less fidelity to the truth. than Right. Others. right. <laughs> they don't want to you know, they don't want to admit that they made a mistake. They don't want to admit that they went to a party during the workday, during these important negotiations with David McDavid. Um, but uh, but, yeah, that was uh, I mean, that was that started off the case with a bang. Yeah. Yeah, really. 
Really? I like that expression, less fidelity to the truth. I, I wish I knew that like when I was in high school, getting in hot water with my parents, just could yeah. I be like, I just have less fidelity to the truth. Yeah. That's I didn't right. lie. <laughs> well, they're, you know, they're extenuating circumstances. Just talk a little bit about the type of experts that you called in this case. And, and I saw that there were a couple of, uh, of Daubert motions to exclude them, and I didn't know how those came out. But um, were, this, were these experts uh, basically to just talk, talk through the terms of the deal? And, and what was the basis for excluding them or, or not excluding them? Well, they didn't get excluded. Um, in fact, nothing happened. The, the Daubert motions were un totally unsuccessful. Um, we had two experts. Uh, one was a guy named Roger Brimmer. Um, and he was a, um, I have to say, he was incredibly overqualified. <laughs> he was, he's a PhD in economics. And at the time, he ran uh, a major economic uh, consulting firm that, uh, uh, as he testified, uh, primarily, we advise uh, nation states on macroeconomic trends. Oh, my God. <laughs> he said, he, I said, well, how, how many people do you have working for you? And he said, well, I have 150 PhDs that work for me and about a thousand other people. Uh, <laughs> and he was he was really smart. Uh, he he did it. He was a damage expert. Right. And he just testified as to the fair market value of the team. And interestingly enough, this is another sort of bizarre fact. Um, he had used uh, multivariable regression analysis to do his uh, uh, valuation. And the other side decided that the thing to do was to attack multivariable regression analysis as an invalid mathematical <laughs> With, with a PhD who employs a hundred other PhDs. Yeah, and now it was it was the the examination of Roger Brimmer on that was ludicrous in and of itself, and he handled himself perfectly, as you can expect. But it was particularly um, futile because on the jury we had uh, a college professor who taught probability, had a PhD in probability, which is what regression analysis is. Right. And another, the guy who turned out to be the foreman of the jury, who was a graduate student at Georgia Tech in math. And he said after the, um, uh, when I talked to him after the case, I asked him, I said, this, all that stuff about regression analysis not being valid, did, did anybody on the jury believe that? He said, at the end of every day, they would come and ask the professor, did any of this make sense? Because it lasted for three days. Did any of that challenge to regression analysis? And the guy would say, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, it was, it was, well, number one, it was, you know, it was wrong. Right. <clears throat> and, and number two, it, 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 the jury, uh, I think, interpreted it as wasting the time. Yeah, well, and it's it's another one of those examples, Steve, that we talk about um, where it's like a it's a strategy that the lawyers come up with for the Daubert motion or whatever, for something that's going to go to the court and they become kind of in, in love with it and then they just can't let it go and right. it doesn't work for a jury. Yeah, well, 
it didn't work for this jury. It's exactly, it's the problem that I see in a lot of cases. A lot of lawyers, if it's written on their outline, they're going to ask the question, regardless of what the witness is saying. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Uh, and the, uh, it was, the other thing they, when they cross-examined Bremer, they, he had written an article that was a, in some learned journal that was a predictive article yeah, of the 2008 uh, domestic economic trend. And the, the idea was that he had failed to predict the uh, you know, crash that occurred in 2008. And he, he, said, he said to the lawyer that was questioning, obviously, you did not read the article. <laughs> if you had read the article, you would see that I did predict economic crash. I predicted exactly what was going to happen. And, uh, you know, she asked him some more questions and he's just hand me the article and let me look at page 63 and let me just. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Oh, and, and, and he did. And he was exactly right. Wow. Uh, the, uh, and the other guy we had was a fellow named Robert Lieb. And um, Lieb was a sports valuation consultant. He valued professional sports teams. And he did very simple valuation where he said, you know, here are six teams. Let's average their prices. And, you know, <laughs> like, and, like a home appraiser. Yeah. Like a home. appraiser. <laughs> yeah. oh, the other one was a, was a, two, but it, 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 uh, so they, they came up with different numbers and apparently um, the jury sort of averaged the numbers when they came up with the 281. That that was what I was going to ask you on the damages. So the the two eighty two hundred eighty one million that was essentially uh, the value of the uh, teams in the in the Phillips Arena operating agreement. Well, it was the it was the excess of the value of eighty five percent of the teams because that's all we were buying. It's eighty five percent and the Phillips Arena uh, over the uh, ninety three million dollar purchase price. Okay. Okay. Um, the difference. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, which, you know, you know, interestingly enough, uh, as you may have seen from the record, when the Time Warner board approved the sale, uh, Ted Turner and uh, Steve Case dissented from the approval. They were the only two dissents. And Steve Case said, we're selling these assets at a fire sale price. And I just... He said, you know, you're giving them one. Right. And apparently, um, there, we never, it didn't really make any difference, but um, there was some evidence to the fact that Ted Turner had said to his son-in-law, you know, we're giving away these teams at such a low price, even you could buy these. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what, that's what, uh, I, don't, I mean, there was, there wasn't much testimony on that because right. Ted, Turner, Ted Turner didn't testify and uh, uh, Rutherford Seidel had a different version. Right. Uh, but it wasn't much different. It wasn't much different. Um, yeah, I, I was just thinking, I mean, you know, they had to be sitting there knowing that they were about to sell this the team for, you know, what you said, essentially boiled down to $7 million. And the, and the experts are coming in there saying, you know, this is worth hundreds of millions of dollars. So 
did, did you ever get a sense of why they were selling in the first place or why you, I mean, were they in financial trouble or just thought these were losing assets? Um, yes. And yes, okay. <laughs> they, they were in financial trouble. Uh, not like they were going to go broke, but, uh, they had a huge amount of debt they needed to pay down. Uh, they weren't making enough money. Uh, they were making enough money to pay the debt, but they weren't making enough money to satisfy their shareholders. These uh, assets were uh, uh, deemed to be, uh, you know, not core uh, Time Warner assets. Uh, and there was sort of the idea that they weren't running them very well, uh, which interestingly enough, I think all the fans uh, shared. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and that they'd be better off without them. Um, further, there was a bunch of evidence that just getting rid of the teams would end up saving Time Warner somewhere around $700 to $800 million, no matter what they sold. Wow. 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 Uh, how long was the, um, I'm sorry, Steve, I, okay. I didn't mean that. Um, I just was curious how long the jury was out for. Do you remember? Uh, they were out for um, several days. Um, not, I, I don't remember, but it was like two or three days. Okay. Uh, and I, I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm the, when the jury's out, it's just torture. Yes. Just, oh, absolutely. <laughs> nothing to do but sit around and worry uh, and uh, think about what you could have done different. Uh, think about what you should have done different. Uh, and uh, interestingly enough, uh, right before the jury came back with the verdict they came back with, um, they asked a question. And the, the question was something uh, along the lines of, uh, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was something that suggested that the jury was taking seriously one of Time Warner's defenses. Uh, like, uh, you know, something like, what do you have to, what, what are the elements of, of uh, well, I don't remember. I don't remember. What yeah. We didn't, we didn't like that question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the jury came back 40 minutes later. Oh, gosh. And I, and I was really worried. Um, of course, it turns out that I, I asked the foreman of the jury after the trial and he said, oh, yeah, we had one person who was hesitant. Yeah. Yep. And they were weren't sure about this one aspect. And so everybody told her it was, it was a young lady. Everybody told her, no, no, that's that's irrelevant. And she said, well, I want to hear it from the judge. And then the judge said whatever he said. And everybody agreed it was irrelevant. And it went on. Oh, gosh. Yeah, that's always the danger of trying to read into jury questions because it can't it many times it's just one juror who just wants to know the answer to this one question. So and it's and it's not the uh, you know, all of them thinking it. Yes, we were um we were quite happy when the yeah. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's all just it all just adds to the torture when you hear that knock on the door and you're yeah. like, is it are they done? And then it's a question and so then it's a different kind of nervous. Oh, I yeah. hate it. It's torture. Oh, yeah. Yeah. My stomach is upset right now just thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. We um um I'll mention that after the um uh, jury verdict came in, um just as an aside, uh, David uh, said, gosh, um, you know, I, 
I usually don't have anything to drink, but I think I might have a bottle of champagne. Would anybody like to join? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, the next thing I knew, uh, we had bought, uh, we were at, we were, uh, David was staying at the Four Seasons, uh, which is right across the street from our office. And uh, we had bought all the Dom Perignon, all the Cristal, in fact, all the champagne. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I would have been like to be a, a part of that celebration. That's for yeah, sure. Yeah, exactly. There were a lot of, there were a whole bunch of people I've never seen before. <laughs> yeah, who joined you? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, um, I, I did want to ask. So, I mean, you you mentioned that you were able to talk to some of the jurors, and correct me if I'm wrong, but so they found for you on the breach of contract claim, but not on the fraud claim, and not for punitive damages. Did you get a chance to talk to them about what? swayed for them in, in on those questions? Yes. Yes, I did. Um, the foreman told me uh, that um, there was uh, this, this kind of thing that always happens, that basically there was one juror who did not think that um, an oral contract should be enforceable, period. Um, it was a woman who was experienced in corporate acquisitions. Um. And she did not believe that uh, there was a contract. So it was 11 to one. Um, She agreed to go along with a breach of contract verdict if the rest of the jurors did not find fraud and did not find punitive damages because the other 11 were Mm -hmm. to find uh, fraud and punitive damages. And they never got... And then, but they never they never got to it because it basically the, the verdict yeah. was compromised. Um, and after the trial was over, uh, that woman came to me and she said, "I know what the verdict was, but there was never a contract." Oh, gosh, <laughs> golly, oh, man, oh man. Well, um, well, Mickey, this has been just a, a, a great talk and, and uh, really entertaining. Um, is there anything else about the uh, David McDavid versus Turner Broadcasting Systems uh, uh, case that you want to make sure our listeners have heard that we haven't had a chance to talk about? Well, there's one thing I will bring up. Um, another, I think, strategic error that the other side made was they decided to cross-examine David for too long. Mm-hmm. They cross-examined him for four days. Oh, wow. And um, David, once he got on this, David is, is, is a car salesman. He used to make those commercials on TV. Right. Take a baseball bat and hit it through the <laughs> and say, this baby's got to go. Yeah. <laughs> David, the longer he stayed on the stand, the more at home he got and the better he got. Yeah. By the time he left the stand, the jury loved him. Mm-hmm. And I'll give you a, a minor example that's irrelevant to the case. Um, David had told me an anecdote before it was uh, before he got on the stand. And, uh, and, uh, I said, you know, David, if you could possibly weave this entertaining anecdote into a, you know, into an answer that might amuse the jury and make them like you. And anyway, so he decided to do that. And he was he's on the stand and he's asked a question and he said, 
And his answer to the question, this wasn't all that responsive, but his answer to the question was, well, I don't know whether it was because my daddy used to have a pet monkey in his showroom at the Cadillac dealership, but my daddy always had a saying. And his saying was, you can't tell what a monkey's chewing until he spits. (laughs) 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 And, And in this kind of trial that, that sort of hit a funny bone, and David told it very well. And that sort of hit a funny bone, and the, everybody in the courtroom laughed. The jurors, in particular, the cook, the juror that was the cook, laughed so hard that he fell out of his chair. Oh my goodness! <laughs> and David was able to jump out of the witness chair and catch him. Oh my goodness! Before he hit his head on the uh, bar, you know, the juror, the whatever the bar between the jurors. Uh. And, you know, and help him up and make sure that he didn't hurt himself. And um, uh, that's sort <laughs> that of great. <laughs> yeah. The name of the monkey was Beulah. Beulah? Beulah, yeah. And um, uh, years later, uh, my partner, Jill Pryor, and I, who Jill did a lot of work in the trial and did a really good job, <laughs> She's now an 11th Circuit. Judge. Right. I, I was just going to say, she's, uh, yeah, is on the uh, 11th Circuit not too long after this trial, I think, right? Uh, not, well, she was six or seven years. Okay. But uh, yeah, she, uh, she and I went to David McDavid's 70th birthday party, and it was in his uh, uh, private rodeo uh, riding, indoor air conditioned riding ring that, um, uh, he had, and he had a thousand of his closest friends. Willie Nelson played. Oh my gosh. That's awesome. He got up and he said, um, all of you here are my friends or I wouldn't have invited you, but I want to point out two people that are instrumental in causing me to have the money to build this place <laughs> and in changing my life for the better. My lawyers, Jill Pryor and Mickey Mixon. And wow. the light came down on us and, <laughs> business cards and threw them in the air. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> wow. And there was a huge picture of Beulah, the monkey. Awesome. Wow. <laughs> Man, now I, now I feel like I won't feel like I've made it until uh, I got a spotlight on me. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> you really you really haven't. It's really, it's right. really a good feeling. <laughs> Oh, that's wow. That's great. Um, Well, Mickey, this has been uh, just a great time. Thank you for uh, thank you for giving us your time and uh, and congratulations again on this case. Let me remind everybody uh, that we've been talking with Mickey Mixon, uh, Bondrop Mixon and Elmore in Atlanta, Georgia. And you can look up Mickey, Mickey at BMELaw.com. And we've been talking about the David McDavid versus Turner Broadcasting Systems case. <clears throat> tried in, in 2008 in Fulton County and resulted in a $281 million verdict. Uh, Mickey, thank you so much for your time. It was my pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com.
We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our Great Trials podcast com as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening. <laughs>